Good morning. So good to see all of you out there. I love this. Okay, the last time I talked, it was the snow day. So um, I like this small, intimate group. Actually, it's not really all that small. I'm so glad that you came today, though. This is spring break for many people, so what a great uh, thing for you to uh, make that effort and to come out. I, I really appreciate that. And I have a new appreciation for all of you young moms out there that come with one or two or more children. Um, two weeks ago, I had my grandson, Dylan, who's three, and my granddaughter, Hallie, who's eight months, and um, I managed to make it to Bible study at, um, for the lecture. Uh, and I thought that was pretty good. Then um, on Sunday, I thought, well, I'm going to make it to church. And my husband was teaching Sunday school, so he had to leave early. And I thought, I'm prepared. I've got the clothes. I put Hallie down for her morning nap early so she'd be up and had the diaper bag and all that stuff and my Bible. And we got all out there dressed in the car, strapped them up. That's the biggest challenge, you guys. You grandmothers know. That is the challenge, getting them all strapped into the car seats, these ultra-safe car seats. So they're strapped in. I get in the front seat, and I'm about to have a prideful moment, thinking, I am going to pull this off. And I put the key in, and I turn the ignition, and click, 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 click. The battery was dead as a doornail. And I thought, Lord, you know, I I, I really wasn't going to have a prideful moment, please. So anyway... Uh, and Dylan's in the back seat immediately. He know, you know, he's like, "What? What's wrong? What's wrong?" And I said, "Well, the car won't start." And he goes, "Grammy, I have friends at church. I mean, he'd been here on Thursday, so he was having to get here because he had friends. So the day wasn't totally. Um, I mean, we changed our clothes and walked to the park, and so Dylan was okay. But I thought, whoa. It takes a lot of planning for you guys to get here on Thursday mornings. Bless you. And I prayed this morning that God would richly bless you for spending that time here this morning and for all of us to be blessed as we read and learn from his word. God is so good. And Jesus is with us. He is here in our midst because we know that when two or three are gathered in his name, he's here with us. And we are um, glad to be here today. This is our second week reading mail from Peter to the Christians in Asia Minor, um, which is present-day Turkey. And how wonderful for us that we have this letter to read as well. You know, Peter was that passionate disciple, and this letter is passionate um, also. Last week, Lynn Kitchens told us that Peter wrote this letter to um, Christians, to believers in Jesus Christ, during a time of persecution and suffering. Now, it was severe persecution, and it was intense suffering. Christianity, these new beliefs, were a radical change for the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, While they believed um, in a living God that loved them so much that the divine man, Jesus, would die for them to make right their relationship with God, holy God, the creator God, and their loving Father God. And the power of the resurrection over death. You know, the unbelievers thought that this was foolishness. In fact, on your verse sheet, I have a verse from 1 Corinthians 1. And this is actually Paul talking. But he says here, let me get my verse sheet out. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness 
to Gentiles. They thought it was foolishness. And the unbelievers had spread rumors about some of the Christian practices. They had distorted them. They said that um, they were drinking blood and eating flesh. That was in reference to the Lord's Supper. And then when uh, they talked about loving their brother, and even Peter, Paul wrote in the end of First Thessalonians, you might remember, he said, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. And the unbelievers had turned this into love orgies that were going on. So they had misrepresented Christianity. And the Christians then were easy targets for persecution. Persecution was very great during this time. In fact, um, Lynn said last week that probably this book was written, I mean, this letter was written during uh, 63 A.D. And we know from history that in 64 A.D., that is when Nero blamed the Christians for burning Rome. Now, most historians think it was Nero himself who started the fire, but nonetheless, the Christians were blamed. And then the persecution knew no bounds. Some of you know these stories. Um, You've seen the stories of the Colosseum, and the Christians would go in there with the lions or with the gladiators, and people would watch them die just for sport. And I read stories where they were sawn in half, and they were burned, and they were crucified, and many other torturous deaths. And I tell you this because we must remember that Peter writes this letter during a time of persecution. He writes this letter to encourage the believers to persevere through suffering and trials. The backdrop of 1 Peter is persecution, and we want to remember that. He instructs them and encourages them to persevere as they live obedient and holy lives with Jesus as their hope. And we, along with these believers, can be instructed and encouraged by Peter as we read this letter for the next few weeks. Today we're going to look at relationships. Relationships. What's a believer to do with other believers? Now, relationships are important. They were important in the past. They're important today. And I've been struck hard by this truth because just this semester, we've already talked about relationships twice. This is going to be the third time. Relationships are important. If God was at a computer, he'd be writing relationships in a big font, and then he'd put it in italics, and then bold it, and then underline it, and then put an exclamation point after it. Relationships are important. And our relationships with other believers are of paramount importance. And Peter knew this. When I was in college at TCU, that was many years ago, I went to University Baptist Church. Um, Christ Chapel wasn't even around then. And I walked across the street and went to University Baptist Church. And while I was there, I was discipled by a gal in the college department. And her name was Glenda Fontenot. She was a Cajun from southern Louisiana. She was beautiful, dark hair, dark eyes. She loved the Lord. She was a neat believer. And she discipled my roommate and me. And one day she was in our room and she was talking about relationships. And I'll never forget this because she began to sing this Barbara Streisand song. Okay, i got to stop. Do you young people know Barbara Streisand? Okay, good, because my husband mentioned um, a different artist to my son the other day, and he'd never heard of him, and I thought, what? You know, so I thought, gosh, am I getting so old that you guys don't even know? But Okay, so you know Barbara Streisand. Well, you know her song, People, People Who Love People are the luckiest people in the world. So she begins to sing this song, and it was kind of popular then. We all knew it, and she said, you know, one day someone said to me, Glenda, you don't need people. 
you are capable, self-sufficient, um, independent. You don't need people. And Glenda thought, whoa, that is so wrong. And she taught my roommate and I that day, we do need people. God is a relational God. God made us relational. First, to be in relationship with him, and then second, to be in relationship with each other. We need relationships with other believers. Our spiritual well-being um, depends on it. It's critical that we're in relationship with other believers. Growing up, we called this fellowship. Fellowship was one of the, you know, the five things. You read your Bible and you witness and you pray and give and fellowship. Fellowship was important. And when you went to things at church, they were called fellowships. Today, we say community. We talk about being in community. We want to connect. And that's the same thing. It's all about relationships. In fact, uh-oh, I don't know where I wrote it. There was a song at Kids Camp. Kids Camp last year was all about teaching the little kids. Relationships were important and how to connect. And there was a song about um, let's walk together because together is better than alone. Let's walk with each other because we is better than me on my own. We is better than me on my own. Relationships are important. And as important as relationships are, they also can be difficult, especially when times are stressful. Uh, A little while back, I had a friend, and she called me, and she had had a plan. It was a great plan, and everyone was trying to change her plan, her husband, her children, um, other people around, and she was really frustrated. And as she went on and told me about this, she got more and more frustrated, and pretty soon she was irritated at her husband, and she was irritated at the kids, and she was irritated at these. I mean, she was irritated at everyone. And I just started laughing because I said, you know, this is stressful for you right now. And when that happens, we're easily irritated with those people we love. I think Peter knew this. He knew that they were in a time of difficult uh, situation and that relationships might be difficult. So he takes time in this letter to talk about relationships. Let's turn to 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 22. And let's just see what he has to say here about relationships. I'm going to begin reading in 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord Stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. You know, he says here in verse 22 that we have been purified by obeying the truth. The truth is the word of God, the written word, the scriptures. And also, Jesus is called the word. Jesus is the living word. And we are purified by obeying the word. Now, this is not new news. On your verse sheet, we have Psalm 119.9. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. We are purified by the word of God. And I love um, Peter's letters because he's always emphasizing the importance of the word, the word of God. And here it says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Last week, Peter talked about new birth, that they were born again. And he's reminding them again that they're born again, and it's eternal, and forever, because the word of God is eternal. 
um, the sermon this past Sunday was on this very thing. And I love it when it all works together like this. But that's what Cody was talking about. He was talking about the seed, which is the word of God, and how it goes into the good soil. It goes into that heart that accepts um, the word. I think Peter might have been thinking about that parable that Jesus had told them about the seed and the soil. The word of God is the imperishable seed. And then he gives another proof text. He goes to the Old Testament. That's what this uh, quote is here. It's from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, where he talks about the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. The word of God is eternal. We are given new birth by God. And because the great characteristic of God is love, then our new life must also show this characteristic of love. We must reflect love. Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. A sincere love for your fellow Christians. This is the word that was preached to you, Peter says. Now, when you hear Peter say this is the word that was preached to you, you've got to know what that means to him, how exciting that is to him, because he heard the words of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus show love and mercy to the people. Peter was in the upper room with Jesus that night before he went to the cross, and he saw Jesus wash the feet of the disciples. Jesus washed his feet, and he heard Jesus when he told them in John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Peter heard Jesus say that. And he would hear Jesus say it again. Um, All those chapters in John 14, 15, 16, 17, that's Jesus telling the disciples his last words before he goes to the cross. And so he says it again before he leaves that upper room in John 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is my command, love each other. So you've got to know that when Peter says that, he's saying it with an exclamation point. Love each other sincerely, deeply, from the heart. You know, we're all about being relevant and being deep. You know, we don't want to be superficial, especially this generation. They're, they're all about, like, going deep. So this is perfect because Peter says, go deep. Love others deeply from the heart. This heart that has been changed by the imperishable word of God. Love your brother from your heart. So let's go on into chapter 2 and see what this entails. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Rid yourselves. The Greek word there for rid means to strip off, like stripping off your clothes. Taking off dirty clothes. You know, I was in the garden um, a while back, and I was working, trying to do something there, and my knees kind of got muddy, and I had dirt on my sweatshirt, and I realized I needed to go to Home Depot, and so I kind of looked at myself and thought, and I thought, no, I cannot go to Home Depot with these dirty clothes. Ladies, we're not going to even go to Home Depot to buy more dirt if our clothes are dirty. We cannot love 
our fellow brother with the dirty clothes on, the dirty clothes of malice. And I asked you guys to um, come up with other definitions. I have the word meanness. And so on your outline, you can put in there meanness. Malice really means evil and wicked. But I, I don't really want to think of myself as evil and wicked. That, that seems too much. But meanness? I, I might can accept that, even though I am evil and wicked, but um, meanness would, uh, would work for me. I want to take off that shirt of meanness. The next thing is deceit. Deceit is trickery. The word really means two-faced. That's a good junior high word. She is so two-faced. Two-faced. It's really being um, dishonest. It's intentional dishonesty. That's what that deceit means. And hypocrisy is pretense. We're pretending to love but we don't really love from our heart. And then there's envy. And envy, I just have envy, because we all know what envy is. Envy is when you want something that someone else has. And it's not just wanting what they have, but it's being resentful that they even have it. We want it, and we're resentful that they have it. There's nothing loving about envy. And then slander. That's saying unkind or untrue things about someone. And, you know, there's something about those words that kind of our ears love to hear it. We kind of love to hear that. It is so destructive because those words go deep. And this, I have to confess, is something that I struggle with. My tongue. And I have to confess to God and say, I am sorry. And I want to be like Karen Miles says. I want to admit it and quit it. I don't want to say any more unkind things about anyone. Because that is destructive. All of these things, these five things, really prohibit our loving our fellow Christian. And then in verse 2, it tells us how we rid ourselves of these things. We do it with the Word of God. The Word of God that matures us and makes us strong. And it grows us up in our faith. And then we get another word picture. I love how Peter does this. He talks about the word of God being pure spiritual milk. And he talks about babies craving that milk. And how he wants us to crave the word of God like babies crave milk. Now you all have that picture of a baby. You all have seen a baby just want that bottle hungry. They get it. They suck it down. Um, Maybe they're at the breast and they're nursing. And then when they're finished, they just kind of fall back, they have that satisfied, um, nourished, satiated look that they get after taking that milk in. That's what Peter wants us to do with the word. He wants us to take it in and let us it nourish us and be satisfied. You know, sometimes I think we're walking around half-starved trying to love our brother, and we can't do that. We need the word of God in our lives. We need to take it in to let it mature us so that we can see how tasty God's goodness is. You know, when I was reading this... Um, illustration of clothes and and taking it off, I thought of Colossians um, 3.12, because there it tells us what we're to put on. It's another illustration of clothes, and I put that on your uh, verse sheet. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Take off those five things that... um, make it hard for us to love others, and put on 
these five things. Maybe you want to write those five things on an index card and put it by your makeup mirror so as you're getting ready in the morning, you can think about putting on, dressing yourself in this as you take off the dirty clothes of those other things. Let's go on and read verse 4, and we're going to see some more illustrations um, of what we do in relationships. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. A chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here we see Peter calling us living stones. Living stones being built together. So what's a believer to do with other believers? First, he's to love them. Second, we are to work together as believers. We're to work together. We are living stones being built together as a spiritual house. Or you might say a church. Just like this church has stones that make up the walls, we as believers are being built together as the church. So when we go out and minister to those in the community or to people in the world, then um, we are the church without walls. You've heard Ted and other people up here say that. That's what that means, that we're the church without walls. We are living stones being built together to be a church to go out and minister to others. Peter calls Jesus the living stone in capital letters. And um, he is precious to God. And we, like Jesus, are living stones. Peter gets this analogy from the Old Testament. That verse that we read there is from Isaiah 28.16. And I have that on your verse sheet. I won't read it, but you can see how it's the same thing. He took this analogy from the Old Testament. And he talks about how Jesus is our precious cornerstone. A cornerstone is that visible support on which the rest of the building relies for its strength and stability. So Christ is our cornerstone. That is what our foundation is. That's what we build our faith on. And that is where we get our strength and stability and security from Jesus, our precious cornerstone. But Peter tells us, for those who do not believe, he is not a precious cornerstone. Look at verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And capstone there is another word for cornerstone. And he goes on to say, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter here um, goes on to quote, uh, this is Psalm 118:22, And Peter heard Jesus, this is really cool, quote this to the Pharisees, this very verse from Psalms. And you can read that in Matthew, oh, I wrote it down here somewhere, 24, 44. I don't have it on your verse sheet, but you can read that whole story. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus was calling them the builders that had rejected the cornerstone. They knew that Jesus was calling himself the cornerstone, that they knew this verse in Psalm 118. But they couldn't accept it. And so it caused them to stumble. And this next um, quote here is from Isaiah 8:14. It causes them to stumble because they disobey the message of God. They reject Jesus. They reject 
God. And then they are destined for judgment. It's a stumbling block for them. We've already read how this whole story was foolishness to the Gentiles. That was a stumbling block for them. And how it was a stumbling block for the Jews. The, the religious leaders, some of the Jews at that time, just could not see how Jesus could be the Messiah. And so his death on the cross somehow was hard for them to accept and take in. It became a stumbling block. And they were destined for judgment. And then in verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And I want to stop because back in um, verse 5 it talks about being a holy priesthood. We're built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, I wanted to talk about that for a second because I think that is so neat to think of us as a holy priesthood. You know, what did the priest do in the Old Testament? Well, a priest is a mediator, a go-between, who presents the needs of the people to God. The priests offered sacrifices for sin. Sometimes they were animal sacrifices, sometimes birds or grain or even drink offerings. And in Exodus you read, and if you're going through the quest, then you're in Exodus, so be looking for this. How Moses, um, under the direction of God, set up the priesthood. And the priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. And they were to be specifically descendants, sons of or descendants from Aaron. Aaron was, Jesus, was Moses' brother, and he was also the first high priest. Now, the priests were the ones that could go into the tabernacle. And you remember, that was the tent that they had um, in the wilderness. And in, as they went into the tent at that altar, the priests would sacrifice the animals, the sacrifices that would make atonement for the people. And then, inside this tabernacle was another room that was the Holy of Holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And in the wilderness, that's where God's spirit dwelt. That's where the Shekinah glory was. Once a year, the high priest could go in there and they would take the blood of a perfect lamb and they would sprinkle it on the altar. And that would make atonement for the sins of the people. The people looked to the priests to go to God on their behalf. But Jesus changed all that. His shed blood on the cross made atonement for our sin once and for all. Once and for all. So each of us can go directly to God. Jesus was our high priest that was the go-between for us, and he has made it possible for us to go directly to the throne of grace. You read that in Hebrews 9.26. It says, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is talking about Jesus. And then in Hebrews 4.16 we read, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can go directly to the throne of God and fall on our knees and talk to God. What a great thing that is. We don't have to have a go-between. Jesus did that for us. We, and that's why Peter calls us, priests, we're a holy priest priesthood. We can go to God ourselves. We also see that the priests made sacrifices. And in the New Testament, it talks about sacrifices that we can make to God. 
not blood sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. And I gave this um, to you in your homework. I gave you several verses. I hope you were able to discuss that, that talked about some of these sacrifices we can make. Um, Hebrews 13:16 talks about the sacrifice of praise. And that's one reason why we give people an opportunity before the teaching every week to give praises to God so that we can all be a part of giving that sacrifice of praise to God. And there's the sacrifice of doing good deeds and of um, helping others. And uh, there is the sacrifice that of, of giving our monetary goods, of giving money. For ministry, And we read that in Philippians 4.18, and Sally shared that, but I also have it on your verse sheet. It says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. This is Paul talking. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He's writing this to the Philippians. And he says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When we give our money to ministry, it is a fragrant offering to God. It's pleasing to him. Some of you in this room have given money for the Tanzanian women to attend the conference that we're going to be putting on in May in Tanzania. And when you give that money, it goes for a place for them to stay and food and a Bible. And I think we have some pictures of the Tanzanian women getting these Bibles. You can't imagine how wonderful it is to see the joy that they have. There's tears coming down their face. They hug the Bibles to them. They carry it around. You see them opening them up. Some of them have never had a Bible, and we give them Bibles in Swahili. This is when we were in Dar es Salaam. We wanted a group picture, um, and every one of them came out with their Bible. We didn't even say that. We just said, we, we want a group picture of you guys, and there they are, and they're all holding their Bible. And you would see them studying and looking at the Word of God. And I want to say that... Um, um, aren't, aren't we cute in our African clothes? And um, they loved their Bibles. And we would tell them as we go, when we go over there, that it's the women from our church that give money so that you can have a Bible to study. And they say to us, tell them, thank you. Asante sana. Asante sana means thank you very much. It's from their heart that they thank you for that. They are blessed by that. We work together as believers, as a holy priesthood. And then there's something else that, um, there's another one. I love, I love those pictures. I wanted you to see that because it's hard. We have Bibles so available that sometimes we, uh, it's hard to take in how much a person can love getting the Word of God for their very own when they've never had the chance to have that before. So let's go on. There's a third um, point in working together in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a chosen people belonging to God. You know, before Jesus came to the earth in the Old Testament, God called out Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They made up the nation Israel. They were chosen 
by God. They were loved by a living God to whom they gave their praise and their obedience. Now Peter is saying to us as believers, we are chosen people. We are loved by God and chosen by God. And that God has made a new covenant through Jesus Christ with us. We are a people belonging to God and that gives us worth. Now, you know, sometimes ordinary objects can have worth just because of who owned them. You know, walking sticks or eyeglasses that were um, Benjamin Franklin's or chairs that were in the home of, um, uh, what was that one I saw, Napoleon and Josephine in this museum. And um, I think that it was, I may have this wrong, I was going to check it out and I forgot, but I think it was um, President Obama that had Abraham Lincoln's Bible when he took the oath of office, I'm not sure. But anyway, can you imagine? Now, our Bibles are valuable because they're the Word of God, but monetary value kind of differs between them. But you know that the Bible that was owned by Abraham Lincoln must have great value because of who owned that Bible. That's the way it is with us. Even though we're ordinary, because we belong to God, we have great worth. And I love it how it says here that um, he called us out of darkness into the wonderful light. And we know that Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world. And I think I put that on your verse sheet, John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to reveal the Father so that we might know God. He tells us in John that he who has seen me has seen the Father. A Father who who is merciful, who has shown us great mercy, who has loved us. And he loved us before we loved him. And because of all this, we are to declare his praises. As believers together, as God's chosen people, we praise him and we worship him. And then there is another little section in chapter 4, and I don't want to miss that. Another little thing that Peter tells us about relationships. It starts um, with verse 7 through 11. And let me read that. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Here's a third section that we see in relationships, and it talks about serving each other. As believers, we serve each other. And what do we do before we serve? First, we pray. First we pray. It says here that the end is near, so pray. Pray with a clear mind and self-controlled. And then after you pray, serve each other. And as I thought about that, it really makes sense. Because when we're talking to God and listening to God on a regular basis, living in relationship with others is easier. It becomes easier. We see a little more clearly what we're supposed to be doing with our fellow brothers. So first pray and then serve others. And then in verse um, 8, 
Paul, Peter talks about loving one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We serve each other by loving each other, and one reason we do that is because it covers a multitude of sins. Now, you probably discussed this in your small group. I hope so. There's lots of different ways of looking at, uh, at this and what it means. You know, one explanation for me is pretty easy. When we love someone, it's easier for us to accept their faults, to be patient with them, to forgive them. Take, for instance, um, your children or your grandchildren. It's easier to be patient with your grandchildren than someone else's grandchildren. In fact, I don't see any faults at all in my grandchildren. Um, That's what happens when you love someone. It covers a multitude of sins. There's another way of looking at this. We could think of how God's love covers a multitude of sins. God's love covers our sin. And we read that in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God's love covers a multitude of our sin. And we want to remember um, that the next thing, that we are to serve each other with hospitality. Now, hospitality was very important. It's important today. It was very important in their day. In fact, Peter and the other apostles and Paul, they couldn't really have spread the word without hospitality because they were dependent on staying in the homes of other believers. Inns were very scarce, and the ones that were there were pretty filthy and many times places of immorality. And so they needed to stay in the homes of other believers. And we see that all through Acts. We see Paul and Silas staying with Jason when he, they were in Thessalonica. We see when he was in Philippi that he stayed in the home of Lydia. And we see Peter staying in the home of Simon the Tanner. Hospitality was important. And the early churches met in homes. That's where they met. Many of you have offered hospitality by opening up your homes for small group or for mom's group or for other meetings or different celebrations. You offer hospitality by inviting someone to dinner or taking dinner to someone. And when I think about that, I also note that it's offer hospitality without grumbling. Because I have a story that my kids taught me, and some of you may um, have heard this story before, but when, uh, many years ago when my kids were small, the church was smaller, but it seemed like um, I was always taking meals to people, someone having surgery or having a baby or something. And so I'm cooking and cooking and trying to get you know, dinner for my family and dinner for them, and then there's the kids, and get it in the car, and you carry the bread. And finally one day, Rachel and Ben are sitting there, and I'm you know, hustling, trying to get there on time, and Rachel looks at me and she goes, We hate it when you take dinner to someone. And I thought, oh, no, God loves us to take, you know. And uh, she said, but it makes you grumpy. (laughs) It was like throwing ice water in my face. I thought, oh, Lord, no, that's not what I want to look like. I don't want, I mean, that kind of canceled out the hospitality. I thought, I do not want to be grumpy. So when I see Peter saying, offer hospitality without grumbling, I see why he added that, because sometimes that can happen. So you must remember, hospitality without grumbling. Hospitality is a very important part of relationships. You know, Peter's not the only one that mentions it. It's mentioned in Romans, in 1 Timothy, Hebrews, Titus. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew. 
And then lastly, we see serving others with our spiritual gifts. Now, um, verse 10 tells us this is one way we see God's grace, by serving each other in our, spirit, in our spiritual gifts. And Peter divides them up into just two general categories, speaking and serving. Speaking is preaching and teaching. And service, I found this definition that I just love. It says, service is a loving thoughtful, active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in our world through which we experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. It's going beyond ourselves to promote the good of others in our world. All the spiritual gifts are important. They're all equally important. Each of us is given a spiritual gift, and we're to use them for others and with others. And we use these gifts with God's strength so that in all things, God will be glorified. So what's a believer to do with other believers? We are to love each other deeply. We're to work together, and we're to serve each other so that God may be glorified. And I want to close with a very short story. Uh, It took place after World War II. There was a famous comedian, Jimmy Durante, and he was going to be part of a show. Some of you may have heard this story before. Part of a show for some veterans from World War II. And he had told the manager, I only have a short time. I've only got five minutes to um, be a part of this show. And the guy said, okay, that's fine. So he goes out there and he gives his first um, monologue and the clapping's loud. And he goes on and he does some more um, comedy. And 15 minutes has passed and then 20. And then 30 minutes, he gives his final bow and he walks off. And the manager says, hey, I thought you only had five minutes. And he said, I did. But I stayed because of the applause on the first row. I want you to see it. And he takes him out and he looks. And there on the first row are two men clapping. One has lost his right arm in the war and the other one has lost his left arm. So together they're clapping. And the more he um, performed, the louder they clapped. And it was amazing to Jimmy Durante. And when I read that story, I think about how it is when we love each other and when we work together and we serve each other, I am just a believer with one arm. You might be a believer with just the other arm. But together, when we serve and work and love each other, together we can clap so that God is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you made us relational people, that you made us wanting to be in relationship with you first and foremost, that our soul longs for that. And, Father, that you made us uh, relational with other people and that you use other people to love us and to um, support us and to teach us and just to walk along with us. Thank you, Father, for that. I thank you for these women here today, Lord, and I pray that this word would bless them richly. Father, that it would touch our hearts, this imperishable word of God, and that it would change us so that we might be women that reflect your love. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Deb. That was awesome. Thank you all for being faithful to be here.